This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Trohangel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. There is always a profound significance when the Spirit of God is in any community, and when there is any special display of divine love and power. It means that the intelligences that are higher than ours see that a crisis is at hand. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they deliver to date. We're listening to a sermon by Benijah Harvey Carroll, or as he's more commonly known, B.H. Carroll. This sermon is titled Faith of Noah, and it was preached in Waco, Texas in the late 1800s. Today's episode might sound a little bit different. Troy and I weren't able to be in the studio together, so he's joining us from his home, and we're using some technical magic to to put it all together. But if it sounds a bit different, then that is the reason why. Uh, Before we get started, big thank you to some new Patreon supporters, Josiah, Brianna, Brian, and Matthew. We really appreciate you guys joining us on Patreon and the help that you're giving to make the show go out to more people. Yeah, we we really appreciate it a lot we we try to create little incentives like you know sending some bookmarks and some stickers out and a little bit of exclusive content but at the heart of it we realize that it's you wanting to support the show and you wanting to support the work that we're doing here and we really understand that we appreciate that and we're really grateful and encouraged and excited to keep thinking of other ways to make revive content joel most people are familiar with the story of noah But one of the great things about these sermons of the past is they can give you great insight even to stories you may think that you know really well. Upon looking at the sermon by B.H. Carroll, I realized that even this story from the Bible that I think I've known since I was young, we've all kind of heard it, I did not realize how directly applicable it is to my life today. Yeah, B.H. Carroll. Okay, imagine America. Imagine a South Central-ish America in the 1800s. That's where we're going to be at. B.H. Carroll was born in Mississippi in 1843. His father was a Baptist minister, and they moved around a lot growing up. We know for sure they moved to Arkansas and Texas, but they also, it looks like they might have lived in Georgia for a while at times. So definitely, again, American South is, is this ecosystem that they grew up in. When he was 16, he went to Baylor University. He got married also around this time, and things seemed to be going really well. And I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners can kind of relate with where he's at at this point. I feel, you know, maybe some of us have parents that were in ministry. Maybe uh, we went to Bible college. Maybe we met our spouse at college. Like that's where this kid is at, at this time. And unlike our lives, or at least unlike my life up until this moment, there's this traumatic shift in his life and also in the whole country. Because as he's just getting going in his career and his life and his marriage, the American Civil War breaks out. The Civil War in America is a dark period for the country. For those who do not maybe live in the United States of America, you may not realize that at many times it was literally families fighting families, neighbors fighting neighbors. The country of the United States was being ripped into by the North and the South. Uh, And in the life of B.H. Carroll, for him, things were actually kind of worse. Uh, He was known 
as a kid, it was known as a kid and even as a soldier for being this speech maker. He just had a way with words. Everyone knew it. And on the eve of Texas entering the war, he gave these speeches to anybody who would listen. They would bring people to tears. There's accounts of people just sobbing and listening to him as he was telling people we don't want to go to war, that there was no way we would win. This was not a good idea. He joined the Texas Rangers anyway, even though he was against secession. And a year later, he was enlisted into the Confederate Army. Uh, he is our second Confederate soldier in Revive Thoughts history. And actually, you can check out the first one, C.I. Schofield. Uh, they have a very similar story where they're kind of going down a dark road, and then Christ uh, changes the direction of the road. But go check out C.I. Schofield's sermon, The Deity of Christ, for a really good one as well. Yeah, so in 1862, Carol, while serving in this war that he did not believe in, found out that his wife had cheated on him back home. And this devastates Carol. He ends up divorcing his wife for infidelity, and it causes him to grow extremely bitter and angry towards God. He begins volunteering on these wild and dangerous missions. People thought he had a death wish, and he survived them all. He came back from every mission relatively unscathed every time, so much so that he almost became this legend, this kind of war hero to all the soldiers. People started telling stories about Carol, even more so because, again, he has this mentality that he, he's, he doesn't like this war. He's, he's not for this war. He just wants to go home as much as the other soldiers did. So he became kind of this, uh, this iconic person among the ranks there. The problem was that he used his influence... Uh, in the worst possible way ever. Again, he was really angry with God, but he really was anti-God at this time. And so he would skip the chapel services that the armies would have, you know, that it was very common at that time for them to gather for chapel services. But during that time, he would ha have his own anti-God speeches that would actually control pretty big crowds. Growing up, he, he developed a talent for speaking in public and to preaching and, and now we see that flipped 180 degrees where he's using his talents for anti-God, anti-sermon speeches, essentially, that were drawing bigger crowds than the chapel that was being held during the same time. He also gave speeches against the South that were also well-received and well-attended, but due to his war hero status, like, that couldn't really be stopped. Like, that, that was bigger than he was. That's one of the most interesting parts of the story to me is he would just get up and basically be like, we're not going to win this war. And it's actually better that we don't win this war. Or he would get up and say like, there's no, you know, there's no chance that it, it would be bad for us to win this war, even if we could, like that would be not what we want. Here's why. And these speeches were well attended. People would argue with them. They'd have these big debates, but they couldn't stop him because you couldn't really call him a traitor. He was the guy on the most front line peak and spear of every single mission doing the crazy stuff that they nobody else wanted to volunteer for because, again, he seemed to have a death wish. And so there was this really unique thing where, like, your, your bravest, strongest, toughest soldier was was cheering was completely demoralizing the crowd and it was just something that very cool but interesting he he almost comes off like a hollywood hero kind of style in 1864 on one of these dangerous missions he is injured he gets that death wish kind of almost answered he goes back home 
and he's back with his family. And I think that this might have been very pivotal. Uh, his, several of his brothers will grow up to be pastors. Cousins grow up to be pastors. His dad is a pastor. And I just think being back home, he's injured, he's rethinking his life, and being back around family, he starts to soften. Uh, his mother gives him a copy of Pilgrim's Progress and insisted that he had to attend a Methodist service revival. This revival in 1865 um, and this book, Reading Pilgrim's Progress, led him to come to Christ. He said that the preacher said, we're all scientific. Why not experiment with being a Christian? And just this idea kind of roamed around in his head. What if I just, you know, was experimenting with being a Christian? What if I, what if I just gave being a Christian a try? What would the results be? And so he's like, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And immediately Christ flips his life upside down. He's, he's saved almost within the same year. He decided he needed to become a minister and felt a call to preach. That same year, he gets married again, this time to a very faithful Christian wife. Uh, she becomes very supportive because the mother of several children collects his sermons for him. The reason we have this sermon is because of this wife who was taking care to note, take, and watch over them. In 1871, he becomes the pastor of First Baptist Church of Waco, and he started to rise in fame when he stood down a prominent minister in town who basically had very soft theology, wasn't really believing, and the word is hard, and he comes in and goes, not at my church, we're going to do it differently than that. Um, he continued to rise through the 1880s. He would be a huge fighter for prohibition. Uh, one afternoon, he ends up in a three-hour-long debate that's attended by 7,000 people, and this debate got so intense, it literally, like, people had to step in to keep fists from being blown up. Uh, throne. It was that kind of a debate. So very interesting time where people were very heated on the issue of prohibition, but he was rising up in popularity due to that. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the, in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. Throughout this time, he was also a professor at Baylor at the school that he went to. In 1890, he stopped being a preacher to help get financial aid to Baptist schools. He worked on this job until he helped found Baylor Theological Seminary in 1905. Just three years after that, he became the first president to found Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So he's founding seminaries left and right. He's <laughs> he's contributing. He's helping find funds for everything. He's all over the place. Throughout all of this, throughout all these books that he was writing and papers and scholarly works, he saw himself first as a preacher. He really believed that sermons had to be preached with a heart for the people, a heart to help them learn and to gather deeper insights about God. Carroll went on to develop some of the future Baptist leaders, and he wrote very important works that would affect everything in the 1900s, especially for uh, those who are in the Baptist camp. Uh, his effect on the Baptist church really ran deep, 
but we're going to have to get that to that on, I think, a future episode. As we listen to this sermon, I think it's important to remember who preached it. Yeah, he was a man. We didn't mention this, but he's actually several inches taller than most people. He would have had a giant flowing white beard. He would have had this pleasant voice, but he was also a guy who once served as a reluctant soldier who was on a suicide mission preaching atheism every day in the camp with the other soldiers. In this story, as we listen to him go through Noah, we can understand that Carol literally was kind of, in a sense, on both sides of that boat. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, moved with fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his house. By doing so, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Hebrews 11:7. There are two parts to this sermon. The part that relates to Noah as a person and the part that relates to those who were condemned by Noah. Let us look first at the case of Noah and his example of faith and see if we can make an application to our own lives. God made known to this man that the wickedness of the world was so great that it was better that the world should pass away. So he said, I will destroy it. I will bring a flood upon it. And everyone in whose nostrils is the breath of life will die and we will make a new start for a new world. That is about what he said to Noah. But he said, because you have loved me and trusted me, I make known to you a way by which you can escape. It will cost you something. It will cost you some money. It will cost you a good deal of time. It will cost you a good deal of labor. But I will make known to you a way by which you can save your family from the general destruction that is coming to the world. And that is to prepare a vessel under the directions I give you. Don't you vary from my plan by even an atom. I am the architect. I will furnish the draft of this vessel. I will tell you exactly how long to make it and how wide and how high and into how many compartments. I will tell you the material you are to use, but I want you to get the work done within a certain time. At the expiration of that time, the flood will come, whether you see any sign of it at all or not, upon my plain and unvarnished word and before a cloud gathers or a throb of thunder is felt, I want you to enter that vessel. Trust me and be quiet. And you need not be alarmed at anything you hear outside. And no matter how long you stay in there, you trust me. I will take care of you. It may seem to you a long time before I command the door to be opened to let you out. But you stay where I tell you to stay, and at the proper time I will anchor your vessel and open the door and bid you come out into a new world that rises out of the draining flood water. Now here are two things. First, God's warning to this man. God gave him warning of things that were not in sight at all. It was the bare announcement of God that a certain thing would be. Then God set forth the strongest kind of a plan by which he might prepare for the issue that was coming. Noah's mind had to exercise faith and fear, and I do not mean selfish fear. Noah believed the statement that God had made, and Noah felt that the judgment was coming, and moved by the fear of it, That kind of an apprehension that a prudent man has when he sees an evil arising and guards against it, he obeyed. This was him making that kind of preparation, which any father will rightly make. 
when he sees danger of great magnitude coming to him, his wife and his children, he is a strange kind of a father if he is not moved with some sense of apprehension of an evil so plainly mapped out before his eyes. In the old days, if a Texan father and his family were in camp and a trustworthy scout brought definite information of an impending raid, then moved with fear, he would make the kind of preparation that would be sufficient for the protection of his wife and children. How much more should a man react when God himself says, an impending evil is near at hand. If you have any faith in the truthfulness of God, then prepare to meet it. I will not go into the details of Noah's preparation, but I will say that he went on steadily with it. Whatever it cost him, he went on with it, no matter how foolish his actions appeared to an outside world. I haven't a doubt that many a man whom he hired to help in building that vessel mockingly said, we will take the old fool's money. He could do what he pleases. He pays us for this work, but if ever there was a madman upon this earth, this is one. Noah could not construct such a vessel by himself. He could not construct it even with the help of his three sons. He would have to employ other men to aid him, and it required a great length of time, and it was a very costly structure. And while it was going up, he preached. He preached of a judgment to come. He preached of a flood that would rise beneath and that would fall from above and whose waters would meet, commingle, and submerge the highest and the strongest resting place of man. And when the time came, the supreme test of his faith was made. For God said, Go in, enter the ark. Lord, can I not wait until the clouds begin to gather? Go in. I want to shut the door after you. I want to shut you in. I want to shut danger out. You go in right now. Well, won't you give me some sign, some moaning of the wind, or some black line on the horizon to indicate that the storm is approaching? No, not a sign. You have the basic straightforward word of God that the time has come to enter the ark. Go with your whole family and enter in now and let me shut this door quickly. Moved by fear, Noah entered in. He had believed in God, had made the preparation, and by doing so, he and all his family were saved from that physical death. But what about the rest of the people? It is said that by believing God and by preparing for the judgment which God foretold, that Noah condemned the people who did not believe, and that his faith stood over against their unbelief. It demonstrated that just as he had had enough light, so did they. Perhaps you say they didn't have it, but remember, he preached to them. God made known to them as he had made known to Noah that the judgment of the flood was coming. They heard it. But you say, he had spiritual light. I say they had spiritual light. Remember 1 Peter 3 verses 19 and 20? By which spirit Christ went and preached to the spirits that are now in prison in the days when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah? It was on that dreadful occasion that the record was written. My spirit will not always strive with men, Genesis 6.3 The gospel, said Peter in the next chapter, was preached to them who are dead. It is a very wide misconception that God suffered these people to pass into the jaws of death without enlightening them, admonishing them, or providing them with spiritual light. While they did not have the light that you have, they had prophets who had as much insight as any of the later day. Enoch, for example, who was the seventh generation from Adam, foresaw and foretold the second coming of the Son of Man. 
He saw that as the men of those days by ungodly manners and ungodly speeches and ungodly actions were casting their rebellion and their unbelief in the face of the Almighty. So then the judgment of God would come upon them. It was only 15 or 1600 years from the days of Adam to the flood. Methuselah, who died the very year that the flood came, had lived to talk 200 years with Adam. So these people had the whole history of the world before them. They knew of the law in the garden. They knew of the expulsion from it. They knew of the way of life by the blood offering, and they turned away from it. There were sons of God then and the children of Seth who believed in Jesus Christ as you believe in him now. But how did wickedness become so universal? It is stated that godly and converted men fell in love with unconverted women and married them. Having married godless women, the mothers controlled the education of the children, and the children grew up like the mothers. And when the living men that were believers died, who was there to take their places? They had married godless women of the world, and these women cared not one bit for religion. Their hearts were as hard as the millstone, and they did not want their children to be brought up under pious influences. They said to their husbands, If you want to go off and worship your God, go on. I will take the children with me. And when will children not follow the mother? Through this method, the corruption became universal. The Enochs were taken up into heaven. The Seths died. The living men who had stood up for God and had believed in him passed away. And there were no children coming on to take their places. None. They were following their unchristian mothers down to death and hell. It would fill the world with ruin now if the same course were adopted. Such a system provides no generation to follow this generation. It makes no provision for the successors to the living. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and formed alliances with them and intermarried with them. When the fathers died, the generation of pious men was gone. And God said, The whole earth is corrupt and filled with violence. Now mark the last step in the divine proceedings. Always before a dreadful judgment comes, there is likely to be a remarkable multiplication of the means of escape. There is an extraordinary outpouring of the divine spirit. Just before Jerusalem perished, just before the days of the Jews ceased and the days of the Gentiles came in, oh, what mighty power of God was displayed in Judea. How the lights kindled and shone. How the spirit manifested his power. What remarkable cases of conversion. What a glorious outpouring of love and mercy. But there was another thing. As mercy was magnified at that awful juncture, so the spirits of evil mustered their forces. Hell saw the issue as heaven saw it. As good angels hovered around, so demons came in and crawled in their slime. The reserved powers of the pit were called out to the last spirit. Empty yourself, hell. Call up the last battalions. Here is a battle for the souls of men. Before Jerusalem is destroyed, let's take them. And so it was in the days of the flood. God's Spirit mightily manifested Himself. It is the opinion of some, based upon one or two passages of Scripture, I am not sure enough about it myself to announce it as a doctrine, that in the 120 years that Noah preached there were some remarkable conversions to God. I base it upon one statement that follows the passage that I read where it is said that the gospel was preached to the dead, to the people who are now dead. And though they perished in the body, their spirits should be made alive for God. It is true that when the flood came, there were but eight that passed over into the new world when the water subsided. 
But this opinion holds that in the last outpouring of the Spirit of God, many souls were converted. As souls were converted in Jerusalem and Judea just before the dreadful destruction of the city under Titus after the Lord Jesus Christ had ascended into heaven. Now I want to make an application. There is always a profound significance when the Spirit of God is in any community and when there is any special display of divine love and power. When God manifests Himself not ordinarily, but extraordinarily, when you feel that the reserved forces of hell and heaven have met together, it means that the intelligences that are higher than ours see that a crisis is at hand, an awful crisis. I tremble when I think about it. Oh my God, what is the issue that has called for such displays of your divine power? What is coming? What danger is imminent? It means something. Hell's forces will not be concentrated for nothing. Heaven's mighty power will not be displayed here for nothing. O Spirit of God, what doom is impending over souls that such divine and such diabolical power should be displayed in the wrestling for these spirits? I do not know what it is. But I do feel that from any great revival meeting, there are going to be broad roads down to death and hell as well as stairways to heaven. It is an awful thing for any man to trifle God's spirit. As he once said, my spirit will not always strive with men. Oh, for faith in God, be moved with fear. Prepare. Prepare and let God tell you what preparation is necessary. Don't dictate to Him, but come with your families into the ark of God. Enter while you may. For fear that He should shut the door and say to your soul, Too late, too late. Lord God Almighty, on this battlefield, where souls are born to God and die into hell, O oh God, send the power of the Spirit to bring souls to life. I stagger under the awful thoughts that come into my mind. I believe God's Word. I believe that there are men and women who will be lost forever if they say, No, 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 to God's Spirit. O oh men, if God touches your heart today, and if the Spirit moves you today, come at once. Do not delay a moment, but be saved now and forever. I feel like praying. I want to offer a prayer for any man, any woman, any child who wishes to make preparation for eternal life. God help him to come. There are angels hovering around you. God Almighty is in touch with souls. Oh, come and be saved. Answer me a question. Not an impertinent one, but a very tender one. Is the spiritual condition of your home such that it makes it probable that your family is going to be a godly family? Do you ever pray about it? Is it a place where the sensual, carnal appetites are gratified? Is it a place where thought is habitually fixed on things that are sinful and temporary and not on things that are good and eternal? Is it probable, from the present condition of your home, that in the world to come, those who grow up around you will stand upon the right hand or upon the left hand in the great day? And does there not fall upon you today, O oh, you head of a house, an awful responsibility that the things which make for righteousness should be in your life, conversations, and house as an example for your children. Is there a godless mother hearing this, whose children are following her in the spirit of the world, the spirit that is against God? Is it possible that there is a father who by all the power of parental influence is dragging his children down to death? Come, you and your household, May the Spirit of God move upon you on behalf of those who look to you, who depend on you, 
and who count you the greatest in the world? On behalf of them who are apt to be more influenced by what you say and do than by anyone else in the world, the Lord God will help you today to ally yourself with what is right. Now I know it seems an unusual thing to get up in a crowded church and come up and say, I am a sinner. I confess it before God and I confess it before men. I wish my sins were blotted out. But there is no harm in it in the world. None at all. There is a vast deal of manliness in it when you look at it right. If you are wrong, why try to cover it? Why wrap yourself in a mantle of pride and say, it is not becoming to a man like me of my position in society to admit in the presence of my fellow men that I am a sinner. Why? They know you are a sinner. You would not tell them anything new. They know it. God knows it. The devil knows it. Everybody knows you are a sinner. You cannot hide that fact. You may think it is covered up, but your spirit acknowledges it that with a true honesty you come into the presence of God and say, Lord God, I am a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. There is something in that which appeals to every feeling in the human heart. There never was anybody but a lost devil who did not respect a man or woman who came and confessed wrongdoing and sought forgiveness of God. Anyhow, I am going to invite you to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What does any human judgment amount to? Whoever craves only for the breath of his nostrils will die of spiritual starvation. Neither human approval nor human condemnation, neither one nor the other, is worth a moment's consideration in such a crisis. Let God and God alone determine what should be human conduct. His promises glitter above you like stars. His invitations beckon you like shining angels. His spirit moves you. His people welcome you. His word assures you that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he that comes to me, I will never cast out. Come, therefore, and be saved today and forever. He said, in the old days, if a scout brought back reliable information that an enemy was nearby, you had to listen to it. How much more than the idea that if God tells you to move, do you need to do it? I think about this a lot. Actually, I teach on this a lot. I tell my students this, and, uh, and, and I say something basically to the effect of, if you say, hey, tomorrow a nuclear weapon's going to blow up, and uh, we're, you know, we're all going to die, um, so you better get out of town. I'll see you tomorrow, and you don't plan to leave. It means you don't really believe what you just said, right? How often do we need to make sure we're believing what is being said? God has told us he is coming back. Christ has said he will someday judge the earth, and that information has been brought to us. Like the scout, we know it's here. Do you believe it? Do your actions show that you believe it, or are these just words to you? Are these just things that you theologically, in your mind, you assent to it, but in your heart, you don't really acknowledge it. It doesn't affect the way you live. I think Carol has a, makes a great point through the story of Noah that there were a lot of people who heard that story, but they didn't believe it. But there may have even been people at one point who did maybe believe in it, but then they didn't get on the boat, right? Like Lot and Sodom had to be dra dragged out. So often people know what they're supposed to do, but they just don't do it. Make sure that you are not one of those people.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Justin Ray. Justin Ray is a data analyst from North Georgia. He currently owns and operates soundandworship.com, a website designed to point Christians to great and solid worship music. He's married to his wife, Annabeth, and they have a one-year-old son named Silas. Today's sermon was also edited by Ben Yost. We said it at the top of the show, but we would just special thank you to all of you who've been signing up to join us on Patreon. If you would like to support the show, think what we're doing is good. We do highly recommend that you join us on Patreon. We do have the full Revive Thought deep dives and ad-free feed. Uh, We do also send bookmarks. Joel and I are getting ready to put in a new order as we have been giving out a lot of those right now. So if you would like to be a part of this order, not have to wait a little bit longer before we send it in here at the end of the month, uh, we highly recommend that you sign up for Patreon now because it can take a little while for those things to get back to us. But again, big thank you to those of you who have joined and we really do encourage you and hope that you will. We use that money, goes back into the show. It helps to get the word out on these sermons and what God is doing um, to more people. And that's really what Joel and I are all about. So we do uh, hope that you will consider doing that with us. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.